0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Michael Ackland, professor of James Cook University in Australia. His new book, "The Existentialist Vision of Murakami Haruki," was published by Cambria Press recently. This book surveys the recurring themes in Murakami's works to examine the historical and philosophical background of Murakami Haruki, one of the most popular writers in the world nowadays. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: My pleasure to be here.
1: Can you tell us a bit about yourself before we dive into the book? Um, What do you teach and research about?
0: Okay, I... I started my career as a person interested in American literature and romanticism with a PhD on William Blake. And most of the positions I've held have been either in English literature or comparative literature and cultural studies. Um, Much of my research has been on um, Australian literature and um, the... I suppose my interest, my research interests in Japan started in the mid-1990s when I was working on an Australian poet who went and spent 30 years in Kyoto. So, of course, I had to go over and uh, learn about his life there. And that really plunged me in at the deep end, very pleasant deep end of Japanese culture.
1: That's fascinating and i love to talk more about your perspective about Japanese literature um from your own expertise but how um why Murakami Haruki how did you how did you uh, first discover interest in Murakami Haruki
0: purely by chance I was doing a lot of research in New York at New York University and at Columbia University on a woman who was a communist writer and had been passed over during the Cold War. And I couldn't sit in libraries all the days and so some days I would go to bookshops and whenever I went into a bookshop piled high on the table were all these books of Murakami, whom I knew nothing about, and they had the most fantastic reviews, like the following one, which I'll read from the back cover of A Wild Sheep Chase. It says, wonderfully easy to read and just as wonderfully difficult to make sense of. And that still seems to me true. Um, li- like the narrator who slowly accepts the presence of in his life of mystery, we slowly recognize the possibility of new kinds of worlds. Like him, we lean forward and topple headlong into magic. And that's really not a bad description of what happens to us as readers. So one day I took the plunge and I picked up the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. And as Toro decided what he would do with himself that first day and he thinks okay there's this lane outside the house I don't know what's at the end of it and his life is never the same so after I read that my life is never the same and I became a hooked fan and Murakami Haruki has for years now been the only writer that I have read strictly for pleasure I just love his books
1: Wow, that is very fascinating to hear. Actually the Wine Up Bird Chronicle is also my favorite of Murakami's works. And it's it's quite funny. I used to hate, absolutely hate Murakami Haruki's works when I was um well, younger. Then after I got to the University of Arizona, I took a course with uh, Professor Philip Gabriel, who of course is one of the most famous uh, Murakami Haruki translators in the world. And through his course, I finally understood that a wild sheep chase was just not a, um, a ridiculous story that doesn't make sense, it's <laughs> a lot of philosophical context. So hopefully we'll talk about that today. Uh, Now, can you give us an overview of this book? Uh, What is it about, and why did you choose to focus on this issue of subjectivity and individual autonomy? Well,
0: those are part of this larger issue of existentialism. And like many readers, I have looked at Murakami, and I have said, what is happening in these books? And I'm fortunate in that in terms of writing on Murakami, I am writing near the end of his career. So I have decades and decades of work to look back on. Whereas you think of the people who were writing when the first two or three works had come out, they were really guessing, they were in the dark, what should we make of these things? Whereas now we can look back. And plus, there are very interesting comments he has made, such as, you know, when I look back on my work I'm always saying the same thing or my ideas haven't changed. So this encourages us to look for continuities and certain things have become clearer. And that was why I looked at the role of individuality and autonomy, because that seemed to me Critical. Right from his very first book, he has these characters who are in rebellion, who are so anti the establishment, anti authority, don't fit in. And where do they fit in? And of course, the first readers and reviewers were saying, hey, these could be American novels. And in a sense, they were, because these issues of autonomy and individualism were foreign issues that were brought to Japan during the Meiji era and since then have remained as a slow ferment and it in due course came to the fore
1: so what's the structure of the book could you give us a little bit of a taste of it sure sure
0: um it, it's the first chapter is called Introduction but that is a and then the second chapter is called On Murakami's Bus but those two chapters are really introductory but they introduce different things the introduction looks at the historical background and there I look in particular First of all, at these foreign ideas coming in and the ferment um, that they caused and the opposition that they encountered. And then I look, and I hope we'll have time to talk about this a little, the student demonstrations in the 1960s, because these were really important for uh, Murakami. And anyway, so we have two introductory chapters, one on the historic background and then an introduction to his ideas. And I basically say to the reader, imagine you're on a bus and we stop at various points on the way and these are major issues that you should know something about when you come to Murakami. So there'll be some material here that people who know – Murakami will be very familiar with, but there'll also be some sections that they'll be less familiar with. For instance, I talk in some depth about European influences, philosophy, and I also talk about the role of the hospital an illness in Murakami, and I don't think that's really had its due. Okay, so you get two introductions, one to the history, one to the ideas, and then chapter three looks at uh, existentialism, what it means, which bits Murakami has plugged into, which bits I allege he has changed, and then I illustrate this with some of his short stories. Then the next four chapters really look, at, in a sense, at the Murakami protagonist, Murakami Man. And I ask this figure that gets repeated again and again, and I'll talk a bit more about him later on. Why, what's he doing? Why is it always the one sort of prototype, typical figure who comes forward? And I basically argue that this figure has the potential for evil or to take a a negative turn, but he has the potential to do something very interesting in existential terms. So chapter four really looks at the negative potential in this figure and then the next three chapters look at aspects of the positive turn starting with childhood and i think childhood is very interesting in murakami then the role of the supernatural and finally i have a chapter called self-making which is of course what murakami really hopes his readers will get into
1: Fantastic. Thank you. So in the beginning, you, you established that uh, the historical background of where Mokami grew up and how he developed, it was very important to his works. So what kind of um, historical background are we talking about? You mentioned the student movement. Um, can you tell us about how this uh, historical background affected his earlier writings? Sure.
0: Uh- it's interesting, Murakami is born 1949, so some of the post-war tensions, some of the periods in the uh, early 50s and early 60s, he only knows from hearsay, but he is a student at the end of the 60s at Wasata University, and he joins the demonstrations, and he claims he was involved, although not particularly of any party. And interestingly, he has said in interviews, we all had such hopes and then poof, suddenly it all collapsed and was gone. And he said people didn't know what to do. And you can see some of the results. Some of these people have become radicals, have even become terrorists. But someone like Murakami, I argue, carries many of the ideas from the student revolution and its interest in um Personal development, enacting change, etc., into his books. So, in a sense, the revolution gets re-channeled into his literature. And when he talks about his ideas remaining the same, I think this is part of what he's talking about.
1: Awesome. And does this connect to the philosophical trends in his works that you observe? Um, well, what the title? Your title. Book title is exceptionalism. So um, what kind of philosophical explorations do you observe in Murakami's works and what was the context?
0: Okay, in the early works, uh, well, first of all I should say that one of the things that any reader of my book will see, or what I argue again and again, is when Murakami borrows an idea, or borrows an image, say, from Sartre or Camus, he changes it so much that it isn't obvious what its origin was. I mean, you can peel through the layers and say, ha-ha, this comes from the myths of, of Sisyphus, the man pushing the boulder up the hill. But Murakami would have changed it, and the changes will also reveal something of his meaning. So first of all, you don't get poked in the eye here as Jean-Paul Sartre being quoted. It's it's far more subtle than that. Uh, what really happened was the French existentialists were very negatively impacted by the German occupation in France. That, no doubt, added to the sense of alienation, futility, disempowerment. And something similar, I think, happened to these students at the end of the 60s when... uh, the establishment re-established itself and this was a very violent re-establishment. I quote in the introduction, the siege of Tokyo University and the police had helicopters, (laughs) virtually everything and it was used against the students and hundreds of people were injured on both sides. I mean, this was extreme violence. I think I call it urban warfare at one stage and so, you know, one, one can't, exaggerate what this meant for the people in it, but Murakami's disenchantment with what that produced comes through again and again in his books. For instance, in a late book, Kafka on the Shore, the the main heroine there has loved a student uh, when they were both young, and he is killed by another student group. They mistake him for someone else They drag him in, beat him to death And throw him out a pile of blood and broken bones on the footpath And you can see Murakami's disgust with the attitude of these people And you can also see his sense of how futile their efforts are They're getting nowhere And of course this is where someone like Murakami tries a different direction uh, as as to existentialism, perhaps I should say a little bit about that and the ways I think Murakami has tweaked and used existentialism. Uh, there's an interesting comment um, by uh, Karatani about Japan borrowing traditions, be they Confucianism, uh, Buddhism, whatever, and he says they are always changed to meet the new environment. And I argue that this is very much the case with what happens with existentialism in Japan. French existentialism, with which Murakami grew up, essentially sees the individual as alienated, uh, as a kind of Kafka on a barren shore, looking up and cursing the heavens that give no direction to us, that seem to be making life absurd. What I argue is that in Murakami, instead of the heavens, we have Murakami's vision of something which he calls the system. And this system is a kind of all-embracing, all-powerful body. And this is what the individual complains of having ruined his life, of having made it futile. And it's interesting, the system we can think of as all the institution, governments, etc., the kinds of things that student radicals will say down with all these things. And there are two interesting images that I mentioned that come forward in his uh, works or his interviews. One is of a wall, and he likens the system to this huge wall. And he says, we individuals are like eggs, very fragile. And, of course, what happens when an egg comes up against the wall? It gets smashed. It hasn't any chance. And Murakami says, and I think it's very important, he says, I will always be on the side of the egg, whatever it's saying. Okay? So he's always on the side of that which is opposing the big system. And the other image that appears, it's in the uh, book After Dark, is of an octopus, some creature living far down in the ocean that we can't see that has these tentacles that come up everywhere and can grab us and squeeze us and kill us and we can't really pin it down. So these little metaphors for this force which he sees as controlling our lives. And while this was an issue in France and in the student movement there, in Japan, Murakami argues it's particularly critical because so much emphasis is made on the collective, on consensus, on harmony, on working as a group rather than an individual. And in fact, he quotes one of his friends saying in a book Imagine if there was a school class and the teacher said, today I want you to consider individualism. This friend imagines all the students would join together in a group and discuss individualism. I mean, you see the Japanese pull to the group straight away and how foreign the notion of individualism is. And, in fact, scholars have pointed out that it was such a foreign concept after the war that the occupiers recommended to the Japanese that they should read the classics of Western literature to learn what individualism is. So this is what Murakami, in a sense, takes as one of his themes, the individual, how the individual um, can make their way in Japanese society, what is open to them.
1: Now, this recurring... Sorry, I was going to say, if
0: if you... If you don't mind me sort going on here with this monologue, um, one of the interesting things is the so-called Murakami protagonist, or people refer to Murakami man. And I had a recent, I had a a recent example of the negative take on this. I went to a bookshop and I was talking to a saleswoman there, and I said, "Have you ever read Murakami?" One of my leading questions, and she said, "Yes," and I said, "Do you like him?" And she said, yes, but once I had a chance to read a number of his books and they all seemed the same, so I was disappointed, okay? And this sameness is the kind of main protagonist he draws. More often than not, this person is about 30 and they present themselves as very ordinary, very mediocre. Do you know they're not much good? They weren't academically very good, They're not in a a satisfying relationship. There's nothing particularly good in their lives. They like being alone, uh, listening to music, swimming laps by themselves in the pool. But, But basically they don't fit in. And to me that is the real key of Murakami Man, that they don't fit in. Because otherwise at 30 or On the way there in Japanese society, you have already been fully institutionalised, so you fit in. You've had family upbringing in a certain way. You've had school upbringing in a certain way. Murakami has said, just think about it, it takes them 16 years of schooling to destroy all the the imagination in our minds, right? He doesn't doesn't set much store by many aspects of schooling. So you've had family schooling and you've got into a job and you've started on a career path. You fit in. You're probably married too. And Murakami's main protagonists don't fit in. And the socialisation they've had has been at best incomplete. And so think of Satoru, again coming back to the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. His wife has left him, he's volunteered to leave his job, he's got no contact with his family. So all those areas where the national consensus is basically propagated and reinforced, he's outside them. And his activities are not even on the main streetscape. They start in his lane and go down a well. So these are characters that are on a kind of threshold where their life can go either way. That seems to me the key with the Murakami character, that he, and it's mainly he's, are sitting there reviewing their life. If they're 30, they've had 10 years since they left school. They've either been to uni or got a job or both, and they look at that and are not satisfied. So what am I doing? What am I doing here? And in a sense, that brings us back to the basic existential questions. What is the meaning of my life? What can I hope for? What can I do? Um, And I think, you know, these were crucial um, questions for the students in the late 60s and Murakami has carried them through to his books and has developed them in his own way.
1: That's very interesting. And since the next part uh, mentions about his critiques on uh, his, his criticism on the Japanese society, do you think um, this exploration of existentialism in his works and his protagonists or his uh, portrayal of um, the system, um, the recurring theme of system in multiple of his works? Um, do you think it's a part of his criticism on this Japanese society? And if so, in what ways?
0: Well, um, for those, to those who have a look at my book, um, if you believe what I'm saying, Murakami is extremely critical of Japanese society. You get, and I don't say this in the book, you get a change after the Fukushima disaster, the way Japan kind of crumples and then rebounds, and Murakami says he sees some hope in the young people and their attitudes. But before then, during the decades when Japan is booming, he does not like the country. He sees it as too fixated on wealth, on getting ahead. And he, he basically says that, he I hated it and so I had to get out of it. And so he goes for a number of years overseas and, amongst other things, writes the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Uh, but what, essentially what he doesn't like is the way Japanese society regiments you and puts the good of the collective in front of the individual. I'm not sure how he imagines that individuals who flourish can still fit into the collective. That will be part of the challenge. But this is this is what he attacks again and again, regimentation, that people. He says the Japanese education system produces too many sheep, you know, people who want to follow. And I can remember it. It shocked me at the time, and with hindsight, it has amused me. An example I had of that in Japan when I was working at a university, it had a private library connected to the seminar, and the people who were at the desk there rotated. And one day I went in and I was talking to the woman there who was always perfectly charming, and our conversation went on a bit and I felt like sitting down. To one side, there were three screens with a chair in front of each so you could access the catalogue. There wasn't a person in the library but me and herself. So I took one of the three chairs and put it down in front of her counter to talk to her. She became a transformed person. She looked as if she was expecting an earthquake, and that was because I had dared to move one of the three designated catalogue chairs away from its place. And she said, oh, please put it back, please put it back. And I said, but there's no one here. And she got so upset she came around and grabbed the chair and tried to pull it out of my hands. So there you have this sense of there is a system, I have a part in it, I, my responsibility is maintaining that system, not questioning it, not looking at the immediate circumstances uh, that might be there that might suggest that a deviation is possible. For her, that system, that order was paramount and she couldn't afford to have any other member of staff come in and suddenly see that instead of three empty chairs by the catalogue, there were only two. And it's this attitude that Murakami talks about. And in fact, in the English translation of the uh, interviews that he did about the sarin gas attack, he's talked to many many people but the interview he starts with is about a victim a salary man who got caught up in the gas attack and he goes to his company he returns to his company probably sooner than he should have because he feels i should be there i should be working now in the department in the, the office he works they say great to see you but over the coming days they notice he is not working as much as he used to work and instead of saying oh poor so-and-so he needs to go a bit quieter till he recovers entirely they start to get annoyed with him because he's not doing what they think should be done in the way of work and murakami traces this through and it goes through the man resigns because he encounters such hostility from his peers and Murakami talks about this as a kind, one form of tyranny in Japanese society and how it can lash out on the one sheep that doesn't quite fit in with the flock. And, I um, you know, this, this fits all societies. The person who is egregious, who steps outside uh, the flock, always runs risks. But I guess Murakami would say in the West, In Western societies, you can probably get away with that to a greater extent uh, than in Japan. You step out the way and you are very strange, unless you're a gaijin, and then by definition you're just strange, so you can get away with murder, but that's another story.
1: Now, your book covers quite a lot of Murakami's works from his earlier ones to his recent one, uh, Killing Commandator. So comparing all these works, what kind of, um, I guess I should ask, do you observe any kinds of transformations and developments in the sense of how he explores these philosophical questions through his protagonists?
0: Yes. Um, The first couple of books, um, there is not a clear philosophical or intellectual framework. And that is felt particularly keenly by the main characters. Mm -hmm. They're in a world that drives them mad, from which they feel alienated and no hope, and they have nothing that will make sense of it. So those first couple of books of his, one of which, of course, won an award and uh, confirmed for him that he should stay with writing, end with the protagonist basically feeling futile and in tears, not knowing what to do. What will gradually happen is that characters will start to move in to, to make decisions for themselves and move in a specific direction. And it was interesting when when people were talking to Murakami about translating his work into English, he said often he would like the translations to begin with a wild sheep chase. so in a sense he would he was bracketing the first two as him being radical and letting off a lot of steam and a wild sheep chase as showing something different. And for me, what one of the big things that distinguishes the main protagonist here from, say, the wind-up bird chronicle is that the protagonist here has his quest forced upon him. He doesn't get to choose it. He's basically told you will do this or you will never again work in advertising. We can do that. You won't get any jobs. So he doesn't have a choice. Whereas the protagonist in um, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle finds himself in a situation, has to evaluate the situation and then act. And it's very interesting that the French existentialist writers talked about consciousness. And in fact, Camus says everything depends on coming to consciousness and self-consciousness. Because the notion is that, um, well, I better backtrack a little bit and say one of the, the other radically different things with existentialism, particularly French existentialism, is that they claim we make ourselves ourselves i.e. they don't say that the individual human being has a preset, pre-existing essence that's going to dictate their life. They basically say that we are there with potential and liberty and through our individual actions we make our essence. And there is a line from the German philosopher Hegel which Sartre loves to quote. He says... And the line from Hegel is, ist was gewesen ist, which translates, essence is what has been. The action, the something there creates the essence. And so Murakami seems to posit that his character's action will actually form them. So we get them, you know, the Murakami man, say, circa 30, he undergoes a whole lot of actions and he is really giving that. Um, that essence of firm form, and it's interesting in the later work After Dark, one of the characters who shows this most clearly, Maria, she talks about getting a firm form or a firm self, and this is produced through action. It's not something you're born with. You have to come to consciousness about your uh, state You have to decide, I want to change in these and these ways and these actions will change and shape you. Just coming back, since I mentioned Maria, to your question about changes in Murakami. So we move to characters who are on a quest, such as the main character in the wild uh, sheep chase, but his is not a self-directed quest. He is told you have to do this, although the way he... um, unfolds it and develops there is purely his own. What we get in, coming back to the um, uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicle, is a character who decides, I want to get my wife back, I want to understand myself, and both of these are possible through the well, going down into the well. And so he makes crucial decisions, and these Sorry, this is kind of a spoiler for those who haven't read it. These climax in him fighting a person who represents many sorts of evil in the other world. So there's a heroic conflict between him and this other personification of evil forces. And what happens in the later Murakamis, you still get characters making up their mind that they have to do something, want to do something, but it does not depend on some heroic action. It is really a decision that they take and day by day their acts build up the kind of person they want to be. And I argue that in a sense this brings the Murakami model for individual development closer to us as readers because how many of us have a chance uh, to act heroically in the world? probably few of us do, uh, although some of our smaller acts might be heroic and we may not realise it. But we have a chance to make decisions and to really decide, I will pursue this tirelessly and make something of it. And this is what we see in the two characters, uh, the male and female character who meet by chance uh, in a 24-hour little restaurant And they have each chosen something. The woman, uh, Maria, has chosen, uh, first of all, it's interesting, the school she goes to, we find out she doesn't go to a Japanese school, she goes to a Chinese. She's already stepped out of one of the constricting, normal constraints of Japanese society. She's also learnt to tell white lies to her family to have freedom. And the final thing we learn about, well, plus she has empathy for people. She's not uh, entirely self-enclosed. And finally, she's going off to China as an exchange student. So this is someone who who builds up, as one of the characters says, a firm self through a whole lot of accumulated acts. And the other main character there, a young man who's studying law, uh, also makes very similar decisions. And this is a fascinating example of how Murakami will use the um, existentialist and particularly French existentialism. Takahashi says that for him the turning point comes one day when as a law student he has to go to the courts and look at some cases and take notes about them. And he sits in on a case where they are trying a criminal, a man with a very long record. So it's already foregone what's going to happen to the man. He will be condemned. And what is, for me, as a person persisting in chasing existential clues through Murakami's work, is what this man is accused of. First of all, he is partly condemned because of his attitude and the way he presents himself to the judge and the court. And secondly, the act he has committed. He has killed an elderly couple with an axe to steal their money. And if you've been following the Murakami clues about the people he's read, you realise that those characteristics which condemn him are borrowed from Dostoevsky, the young man, killing an old woman for her money in her apartment, and from Camus' The Outsider, where he is partly condemned because of the attitude he shows in court and to his crime. And, of course, Murakami mixes them up, puts them there, and, you know, most of us, of course, won't know where they come from. <laughs> and, and this is what I meant about that, you know, when Murakami takes something from somewhere else, it doesn't glare out at you. It fits in. It then becomes up to you to say, Why did he pick those? What point is he making? For the young student who sees this, this is a revelation because he thinks this man has really not had a chance in the system. I am going to devote myself to trying to pull people back from the clutches of the system or, as the student sees it, the octopus. So you get these changes and these go right through To a book like um, killing Commendatore. again a person who has to make decisions for himself goes plunks himself on a mountain and has to make crucial decisions follow them through with work every day and see what will come of it
1: now i'd like to return to something you mentioned early on in the book um something about integrity so how do you think Murakami's works explore this uh, problem of integrity of novelists as in the, the identity or the responsibility of novelists?
0: Okay. Um, the French existentialists went on quite a bit about something. I don't think I even mentioned it in the book or I might mention it very fleetingly called bad faith, mauvaise foi, and bad faith is when you know in this given situation to act in this way is the right way to act, but despite knowing it, you act in another way. You act against your better knowledge. That is bad faith. Uh, so for a writer this means uh, what, what should I really be doing? And it's interesting because Killing Commendatore is his most recent book and it is about a painter. But a painter is a kind of generic artist, can stand in for a writer too. So really through the painter Murakami is giving his comment on the creative process. And the integrity comes through here or authenticity with your choice about what your subject will be. And it's very interesting the way Murakami presents this painter because this painter has been a highly successful painter of portraits, and he has painted portraits of people from corporations and others and earned it very well. But in doing that, okay, he's fed his family, but he's tossed away all the ideas he had as a young and enthusiastic artist. His life will fall apart and he will go literally out to a mountain, he says, to find himself. And he thinks he will find himself in painting if he can only find what his particular vision is. So you can see he's given away this sense of integrity of what he should have been as an artist to pursue commercial ends. And this is driven home by the way he did those portraits. He would say to you, for instance, if I contacted him and said I would like a portrait, he would say, send me some photos. And then he would have an interview with me, a brief one, and then he'd say, okay, I'll go off and paint it. And he would paint it essentially from the photos and from whatever he'd gleaned from me in talking. And one of the interesting things he says, with every subject I had, I tried to find out one or two appealing features because there is this sense that in us there are negatives and positives, and if you don't underline the appealing, the positive, those negatives can very easily come to the fore. Anyway, when he's on his mountain, he goes back to doing portraits but an entirely different way. Instead of photos of the subject, he has, he has the subject sitting there and instead of just interpreting the subject, he finds that a kind of exchange is going on between him and the subject so that if it's argued in the book, so that if you really knew the painter well, you might recognise aspects of him in the portrait that he has done. Now, one of the key things that Murakami... Uh, indicates in terms of the the change in his painting technique, and this could really apply to Murakami's writing technique, is that he gradually gets in contact with his imagination. So it is a playoff between reason and imagination. And this world of imagination, which really transforms his work. And in the English translation, about three or four times when he's painting, it said, not thinking, not thinking, not thinking. The crucial thing is not to be rationally putting it together, but letting your mind take the idea and pursue it. And... This side of your brain can put you in contact with the subconscious. And this is, the, and something else that's very exciting in Murakami, it can put you in contact with another world, a supernatural or paranormal world. And Murakami as a writer says that his writing consists of him sitting at his desk and diving into these dark, unknown realms and he says there's always a danger you don't know what you'll discover you don't know if you can find the way back but it's this strangeness that also hovers around his characters and um And his novels, you know, when that that thing that I read from the back of the book that talks about the magic, that's this this other realm that the world of reason hasn't got any time for. Uh, You know, Kant, whom one of his very earliest characters read, Kant says it has to be available to the senses and to reason. Murakami says rubbish, you know, right beyond the senses, there's something extremely important and we miss it at our cost. So the Murakami author must put himself in contact with all sides of himself and potential and he must interact with his audience. And Murakami has been particularly clear in more recent time about his goals. And this is interesting when, you know, I said at the beginning uh, I was very fortunate in that I was writing about Murakami near the end of his career. So I had decades to look back on so often early reviewers of his work said this guy is writing pulp fiction it's not really about anything it's just a big rant etc now we can see where it fits in, and Murakami is insistent that the writer has a huge responsibility to his readers, to his generations and uh, to the country at large. And he says we have to give, we have to write the stories that will become everyone's stories. We have to encourage people to follow whatever their creativity, whatever is original in them, and use that for their own good and for the good of society. And so in a sense, he is showing readers a way of, if you like, shaking and brightening up the society in which they live and hopefully, hopefully, liberating it a little more than is the case.
1: Indeed, that's very fascinating. Now, one last question for you. So most of your previous research before this book focused on non-Japanese literature, mostly English literature, in the early 20th century. Um, Do you see this book on Murakami Haruki as a break or continuation from your previous works? And um, another question I'm very interested in is that since Murakami is so often compared with some Western authors, um, there are many people say that um, Murakami's works are very easy to translate back into English because he al- it's almost as if he writes in English, but in Japanese. So what do you see as some major differences or similarities between his novels and uh, the Western authors that he may have been influenced by?
0: Okay, I'll first... There are two questions here. I'll first answer the first one, and I might have to ask you to repeat the second one by the time I've answered the first one. Um, Murakami, as I've said, is just my favourite author, and I read him because I love him, and I have tried to write a study which is, by academic standards, highly readable for the audience. I hope they won't feel bogged down and clogged. I mean, it was fun to write. I hope it is fun to read. Um, in a sense, it continues my interest because I have been working on a uh, I have been working on the well early part of the 20th century up to up to the Second World War and the effects that this had on people. And I didn't mention this before but in terms of the Murakami man one direction he can take as I said is negative. And one of the interesting things is the way obsessively in almost every Murakami work there is a reference to the Third Reich or the Holocaust. And, for instance, if you take Killing Commander Torre, literally it's divided equally between Part 1 and Part 2. But Part 1 ends with a quotation from uh, someone's experience in a concentration camp. And this seems to have nothing to do with what's gone before and nothing to do with Part 2. And yet it sits there. And it's very interesting because it deals with the question of integrity. It's in a concentration camp the inmates are talking to someone who was painter and whom the SS have grabbed to do portraits of them and their families and the painter is is fuming this day and he says god i wish i could paint the little children the piles of their bodies and things like that not these bloody families etc and you know murakami is determined to paint what he knows he should be painting he's not going to sell out even if there is a risk and the interesting thing is he talks about the holocaust again and again he talks about eichmann adolf eichmann and that is very interesting because eichmann was a person who was it is said Had a large part in organizing the Holocaust, deciding that the Jews and other undesirables would be carried with trains, setting up the timetables, etc. And Eichmann was eventually tried in Israel. And there was a book about his trial. And in one of Murakami's books, one of his characters goes to someone else's home and is just looking at the bookcase. And what does he find? he finds a book about this trial. And it's very interesting because one of the people who wrote most uh, persuasively about Eichmann um, was Hannah Arendt and she talked about him as representing the banality of evil. That was her phrase, the banality of evil. You know, we often think of evil as some huge thing, you know, Genghis Khan destroying a whole city and so on. But she basically says, no, evil can come in very small, very insidious ways. And she says he represented something different. He was an official. He was a desk clerk, and yet he was able to kill and, you know, this is the negative way. This potential is there in Japan, Murakami suggests again and again. So you, you have this connection with these earlier things. So I read Mur- Murakami for himself and for those fantastic stories because if he's anything, he's a great tale teller. Uh, but he is very interested in that past of the 20s, 30s and 40s his characters say again that violence hasn't gone, that it's just a lurking around the corner, that the solid earth can disappear from under us, etc. And that potential he recognizes and shows in various ways, but he prays and he writes so that it won't happen again. And your other question was. Um, the similarities,
1: difference. yes. His so from your perspective as an expert of English language literature, how do you find um, Murakami similar or different with uh, authors of English li- English language literature?
0: Okay, um, <clears throat> here it's interesting that Murakami has translated over twenty novels from English, most of them <clears throat> from American literature, and a number of the authors. Uh, that he's translated are people who have presented individuals, very strong individuals. And so this has been one interest. And it's interesting in one of Murakami's first works, when someone, a, a writer of pulp fiction, suicides from a building, it turns out to be the Empire State Building, he is an American, i.e., the outlaw writer is presented as an American, not as a Japanese author. And when he leaps from the Empire State Building, in one hand he holds an umbrella and in the other he hands holds a portrait of Adolf Hitler. And you might well say, hello, here comes the Third Reich again and here is something that has led to an extreme and totally futile act. But anyway, <clears throat> there are these crossovers in terms of exploration of the individual How the individual relates to society, etc. What really sets Murakami apart is the Japanese context. That the society that he faces is, according to Murakami, so antithetical to an individual and to a person finding themselves, expressing that self, bringing that individual vision to bear on society. And he also has an urgency and a sense that his work can possibly change things. Whereas many of the authors that he has read and I have read seem to be writing fascinating accounts, but not necessarily with such a an underlying programmatic thrust. So I'd say Murakami's fascinating because he writes stories you can't put down, Uh, he he reaches out to so many readers in very many ways, leaves so many fascinating things dangling that worry us for years afterwards, and he is determined to show us as individuals what we can achieve. He puts it within our reach to change ourselves and maybe the world around.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you. And... Thank you for your time to join us in this conversation. My pleasure. Okay, um, for our listeners who might be interested in Murakami Haruki and want, want to dive deeper into his world, make sure to check out this new book, The Existentialist Vision of Murakami Haruki by Dr. Michael Ackland. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Please stay tuned for our next episode.